morning, my name is to you that I was not born in the South. <laughs> we came with my precious wife, Zita, who's sitting right there, from Budapest, which is the uh, capital city of Hungary. It was a communist place at the time under the rule of the Russians and the communist parties. And the one major thing about communism is the lack of freedom. There is no freedom. We grew up under that. Amazingly, when you grow up under oppression, you don't really realize it. It's like a froggy in a pot. When you slowly boil him, he will not jump. So as we grew up after a while, I realized and we realized that there was no hope for us. So we left our country under circumstances that are not very romantic, and I don't have time to tell you about that. But one very important part of our leaving was when we crossed the border from the east, actually the Iron Curtain, it was open for us. As we went across the feeling that I had in my soul of the freedom, that I was free, that was an amazing, amazing feeling. As we lived here and we were um, part of the community, learned English, learned to work and do other things, I've been driving back and forth to work and um, I was wondering uh, why I was not 100% happy. I was happy and I had all the reasons to be happy because I had a car, I have children, I had a beautiful wife, we had enough money to make a living, but yet every once in a while I had this feeling of emptiness in my soul, in my heart. One day I was driving home and on my radio station I noticed there was a different kind of music and I turned it up a little bit and I started hearing Christian music. Now, I was not a heathen, um, nor was I from an anti-religious background. We knew about Easter, of course. We knew about Christmas and all those other things, but <clears throat> I really didn't know um, much of the meaning of it, I just knew it was existing. I heard about Christ. But on this radio station, I heard about the fact that we are all sinners. Now, this not surprised me because I, growing up, did many awful things. I didn't kill anybody, by the way. <laughs> but did some bad things, and we all have done that by the time we reach 20, 24, 25, even earlier than that. So nobody had to twist my arm and tell me that, you know, you didn't do all things right. But I always figured, like most of us do without Christ, is that I do a lot of bad things. As I grow older, I do a lot of good things, and all of a sudden the scale will just tip over. And I stand before God, and God says, hey, there's some bad stuff here, good stuff, more good stuff, come on in. So that was my idea. Until on this radio station listening, I, I heard about the fact that I had an inheritance. An inheritance is mostly good. Rich uncle dies and leaves you a bunch of money. But this inheritance was not so good. This was an inheritance that I inherited from Adam and Eve. There was a sin that came from them and passed on throughout generations to myself. So there was no way that I could do anything for that. Because once you inherit something, it is yours. So there was no way of balancing it out. Let's say I stole $100 and I give $100, that balances out. Did this, balance it out. But there it was, something I couldn't do anything about. 
And that really hit me hard. So then I heard that Jesus Christ, the reason he came, the reason he was born, and significantly he was born from a virgin. Why is it so important? Because it is a miracle? Yes, it is. It's so important because the inheritance was cut off in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He was from the lineage of David to inherit a kingdom and a throne, but his father is God through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he had no debt of sin to pay to God. So he could go to the cross and he could die my death and your death and say it is finished and God can say I am satisfied. He was satisfied with that sacrifice because he didn't owe it. So therefore once I realized that I just cried out to God. I didn't have a prayer that was pre-written. I just realized that I need to be saved. So I cried out to God. I said, Lord, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, if all these things that I hear and it's true, and I know it's true because it burdens me, please save me. And I was driving home at this time, and um, my Volkswagen van did not start floating on the air. There were no stars. <laughs> there were no stars coming off of the sky. The angels did not sing. Nothing really happened much. I just kept driving home. I came home and I, my wife looks at me and she says, what happened? I said, what happened? What? She says, you look different. I said, oh yeah, I was born again as I was coming home. <laughs> so she says, oh, okay. <laughs> so we went on. But, you know, if you have a headache 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning in the office and you go to your coworker and says, hey, you have something for a headache, he gives you something, whatever it is, and... Um, Three o'clock in the afternoon, he says, how's your headache? You will say, what headache? Because you totally forgot about it. Because it went away at one point. That's the way I was with my sin. Days and days, days and days later, I realized I don't have this awful feeling in my soul that I'm lost. I was saved. I had no debt to pay anymore. I didn't have to work hard to balance this so-called scale. I didn't have to do anything except trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, he gave me a new life. New life means that you turn around. You go in a different direction. Again, there are no miracles. The salvation itself is a miracle, but the life in Christ is a life lived by his word for him. Through the scriptures, through the living and eating and breathing uh, word of God you can grow in Christ now if you sit here today and you are saved praise the Lord and you rejoice and you enjoy all this singing my wife at one time was witness to and she said this prayer that's supposed to was a sinner's prayer and it was supposed to result in salvation and she was coming to church until then but after she said the prayer she was supposed to be born again and she kept coming to church kept sitting there and didn't understand anything. Scriptures didn't make sense to her. She got frustrated. She says, I'm not coming anymore because I am a Pharisee. I'm, 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 I'm making faces here. I don't belong here. So one day she was home. We were media Christians. 
She was home and listened to Billy Graham. I saw him on TV. And she was born again right at, at our home. And after that, her mind was open to the scriptures. So if today all these things make sense to you and, and you understand everything, praise the Lord, you are in the family of God. If it doesn't make sense to you, that you may want to grab one of those Bibles. I recommend you to read Romans 8. It's very, very good. It's full of, chock full of uh, gospel messages. And all the Bible. And just listen to the messages, uh, Pastor comes. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, Pastor. And I'm sorry if I took longer than I have supposed to. I love this guy. <laughs> and I love his I love his savior and I know many of you do too. And Well surprise is a powerful uh thing. We shock, surprise. I'm shocked that there's people sitting on the front row here. Sorry, I didn't mean to point you out. You're all the first. So, um but uh we're we're grateful for that. Um, but, but surprises can be great and surprises can be very hard. Uh, I remember it was just a little, um, a little less than a year ago. We went up to Scottish Rite with Katie thinking, trying to find out whether she just had a stomach virus or whether maybe she picked something, some kind of parasite up when we visited the Flintoffs in Senegal. And within 45 minutes of walking in the door, we looked at an image of our daughter's head on a screen, and we heard the words brain tumor. And shock, just did not see it coming, and we wept and buckled. Um, but then you, you've seen the YouTube videos, they, and, and you've wept along with them when you have the soldier dad who returns home from war and surprises his son or daughter at their school assembly and, you know, pops out of a present or comes walking around the corner and tears, but tears of joy and the warm embrace and so surprise. So, Well, the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is about shock, it's astonishment, it's surprise. Um, there, but, but which kind? You, you probably think it's the second kind, the joyful kind, the gladness and tears of, of thankfulness. But, but in reality, it's a mix of both. And in, initially, it's really the former. It's grief. It's horror. Um, and and did, did you hear it in the passage Eric read earlier as you're following along? They were, these women are alarmed, trembling, astonishment, afraid. They're too afraid even to say anything. They're, they're paralyzed by what they saw and heard by the tomb, the, the, the stone that is rolled away, the angel, the message from the angel. And so we can, we, we, we forget this fact because Easter is, is so familiar to us, to many of us. We live in the South. This is just what we do on this Sunday. We can count on, we can always count on death, taxes, and peeps. <laughs> or whatever Easter thing comes to mind. I mean, this we have our traditions. We know what to wear on this day, and so we have all the pretty dresses and men wearing pastel ties, and and uh, we know what to eat. And you'll go home and probably have ham and deviled eggs and candy and whatever it is. You know what to do. You go to church. You you go probably maybe you have Easter egg hunts. I don't know, but well, you have traditions, and traditions are great. 
I hope that you have them. I mean, traditions are those things that they're reminders for us of things that are important, things we don't want to forget. And certainly the resurrection of Christ is one of those things. But, but the challenge on Easter Sunday is that thing, it can become so familiar. So predictable, so routine, you know exactly what to expect. You came here thinking we would sing about what? The resurrection. Thank you, Wade, for not disappointing us. (laughs) You came expecting me to preach on the resurrection. I'm not in 2 Kings. We're not talking about death and dying today like we have been for months. I know. And you're relieved. And we're, we're, we're talking about the resurrection. And I'm wearing a tie. Yeah, something I remember how to tie. Trust me. So I was glad to see that this morning. Um... But, but, but you, you, we do this, we know how to do Easter. But one of the things we want to do this morning is we want to, we want to enter into the surprise and the shock of Easter. It's really about the unexpected. And, and so that's what we want to do. We want to kind of shake off our familiarity with the story. And I realize we can't pretend we don't know it. But, but, but let's be shocked and awed as they were. Those first witnesses of the resurrection. And let's enter into that with them today through this text. Now I am mindful of the fact uh, that the likelihood that there are probably some of you, maybe many of you, that that just don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you don't believe in the resurrection of any dead people. You've never seen it. You've never... Uh, you never heard of any that could be really verifiable. You you probably think this is kind of religious fiction. It's nice. It's a neat story, but it's make believe. Um, and so you may be here thinking that today. You're not you're not alone. And and I want you to even see this today. Even Jesus' closest followers were not expecting, did not believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. Um, that Jesus told them exactly what would happen, but they did not believe that he literally would rise from the dead as he said he would. They thought he must have meant something else. And we'll see that in our text. They weren't expecting it. They weren't really looking for it. They were preparing to kind of move on with their lives. Um, and so just keep that in mind as we as we work through this today. So just two things this morning, two main Headings that we'll kind of work on. I think there's an outline in your bulletin and you can scribble down notes or just listen. That's just whatever, however help helps you to, to, to listen to what we're saying. First thing that we'll say is this. Is the empty tomb is so shocking because it's so true. It's true. Um, now I know there are many ideas that have been put forth to explain away the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are those that have said, well, he didn't really, he didn't die. He was, he was just so... There was so much blood loss, he was, he was near death. And so they thought he was dead, and they laid him in this cold tomb, and that cold air refreshed him and revived him, and he, and he was able to kind of come back and, and walk out. Um, others think that this was some kind of mass hallucination, that it would be something like this, and this has often been put forth, that Jesus' followers wanted so badly for him to rise from the dead that they actually just... They just thought it happened because they wanted it so badly. They imagined it. But, but that's not at all what we find in the account. That, that's not it. That's, they didn't want it. They weren't looking for it. The, the reactions 
of the women and the disciples in, the, in, this, in these resurrection accounts, they don't make any sense unless they're reacting to something that actually happened. And so that's what we want to see this morning. So Mark chapter 16, you're there with me, and we're just going to read through the text and make some comments along the way, and then we'll, we'll show some of the implications of this for us. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Sabbath ended on, ended on Saturday at nightfall, so about an hour after sunset. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spi- or excuse me, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Him being Jesus. So these three women, they were no strangers to Jesus. They were there at the cross in John, uh, Mark fifteen forty. They were at the cross looking on from a distance, just keeping watch over um, their, their leader. Mark fifteen forty seven. they saw where he was laid. So they saw the tomb that Jesus' body had been laid in and buried. And so they, these were loyal followers of Jesus. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to finish what Joseph of Arimathea had begun, and that was the preparation of the body for burial. And, and so the sun was setting on Friday. They, they, it was the, the Sabbath was beginning, so they had to go home, and then they were coming after the Sabbath to, to finish what Joseph started. So verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, the grammar, the New Testament's written in Greek, and that, the grammar of that little phrase, they were saying, it indicates that they kept saying over and over and over again. They just keep saying, asking the same question. That consumes their conversation as they're going to the tomb that day. Who's going to roll away the stone? And they might talk about, oh, but who's going to roll away the stone? If you've been in intense grief or you've been around people who are, who are grieving in this shock kind of way, something happens, you, you know there's a tendency. You get stuck on a question, a dilemma, and you just keep asking it. And that's, that's what these women are doing. And, and they're, who's going to roll this massive six-foot boulder away from the entrance of the tomb? And so verse 4, and... And, and looking up, the language is very specific. They were looking down. When do we look down? When we're sad, grieving, when we're, when we're dejected, when we're hopeless. They're looking down, but they look up. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And they started rejoicing. And celebrating that the stone was rolled away and Jesus was alive just as he said he was. It's not what it says, does it? They're, they're filled, they're probably filled with fear and, and likely frustration here. They, they were not anticipating the stone to be rolled away. They were not anticipating Jesus' re- resurrection. They did not come looking for a live Jesus. They came looking for a dead body. And that they could prepare and so it wouldn't smell so bad as it decayed. That's what they wanted to find, was a dead, the dead body of Jesus. But the stone was rolled back, and that meant probably one of two things, one, or, one of a couple of possibilities. It maybe meant that his body had been stolen by his enemies and likely desecrated by them. So they're, they're not happy about what they see. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The young man is an angel. We know that from 
parallel the other gospel accounts. And we know it from the verbal exchange that's about to take place. Um, and the women are alarmed by his presence. So verse 6, he said to them, this is something angels always have to say to people when they make appearances. He says, do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid because they were scared out of their wits. They're afraid of the angel. They're afraid of what's going on. They're afraid uh, for what might have happened to their Lord's body. They're alarmed. They're shocked in an awful way. And he says to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You're looking for the dead body of the man Jesus, the one you saw die on the cross. But this man of Nazareth, he says, he has risen. He has risen. Now we might expect here kind of a stern rebuke from this angel. saying, Don't, Did you not listen to him? He said he would rise on the third day. Don't you ever listen. But he simply adds, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then he gives more instructions. Verse 7, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now again, notice what the angel does not say. He doesn't say, you go tell those miserable, backstabbing, low-life, low-life followers who said they would die for Jesus, but who abandoned him in his darkest hour. You go tell him that Jesus wants to have a word with him. And like, you know, or bruisers coming to the door with a baseball bat kind of a thing. You know, it's not that. No, the angel says, you go tell the disciples. And then he specifically says, and Peter. Why does he highlight Peter? Well, if you know anything about the, what events that transpired before Jesus' crucifixion, you, you know that Peter denied Jesus three times. Denied, ultimately, that he even knew him, and he denied it with a curse. Just totally abandoned the Lord when he was at his greatest moment of suffering. So he singles out Peter. He says, you tell the disciples and Peter that he's going to meet them in Galilee, just as he said he would. This is just an overture of grace. It's grace. Verse 8. And we see this initial astonishing response, uh, surprising response to the wind. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Afraid. Now they eventually do go on and report to the disciples. But initially they're, they're afraid. They're they're, they're scared. They're paralyzed by what they've just seen and heard. <laughs> they're not elated. And Matthew's account showed there was joy mixed with the fear, but there was plenty of fear. We need to ask, why, why were they so surprised? Why? What, Jesus told them many times what was going to happen. He told his followers. He told them many times that he'd rise from the dead after being Killed And back in Mark chapter 8, just turn back several chapters, Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And so he said exactly what would happen, and that's exactly what happened. Now, Peter, at that point, he pulled Jesus aside and he got in Jesus' face a little bit and he said, No, Lord, it's not going to happen. It's not happening. 
But Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. This was the plan of God. Nothing's going to thwart it. Mark 9, 31, he repeats it again. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This time the disciples don't say anything. They learn their lesson the first time. Um, But the text says, goes on to say, that they still didn't understand what Jesus meant. They didn't get it. Now, we're ready to kind of throw in our little jabs here and say, what, what imbeciles? I mean, we question their IQ a little bit, ridicule them. I mean, how, how could they not get it? Jesus made it so clear. But listen, you wouldn't have got it either. You just say that. Let me, just a, a way to illustrate this. If you would have told me 25 years ago when I was a teenager or something, um, if you tried to explain to me an iPhone 6 or an Apple Watch or some new gadget, I still don't understand what an Apple Watch is, but if you would ex- try to explain to me an iPhone and what it was and how it worked, I would have called you crazy. What are you talking about? You, you're telling me that you're going to have a device in my hand that can basically have access to any information in the world I pretty much want. I can have satellite images of any place on the globe right here from this thing in my pocket. I can... I can uh, have video and audio call to my friend in Senegal for free, right here, from this thing. You're crazy. You're nuts. Um, and, and it would have sounded like science fiction, but, but I would have had no category of thought for something like that. I, I, I couldn't conceive. I, didn't have, I wouldn't have the vocabulary for you. To, when you began to describe what was happening, I wouldn't even have that. Bluetooth connectivity? What in the world are you talking about? Wi-Fi? Uh, apps? What is that? You, you, so you see, they, they, have no, they had no category of thought for resurrection. They, they didn't understand it. And so, so let's not be too quick to insult them here. Mark 10.33, he says again, they're on the road to Jerusalem now, going to the passion of to the to, these are the final days of Jesus' life. His followers are starting to get concerned. Things are kind of escalating around him, and so they're they're really concerned. And very, Jesus is very explicit about what's about to take place. And he says, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." I mean, he's explaining very specifically about what's going to transpire. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You can't get much more explicit. Now, these are the instances that are recorded for us of Jesus telling his disciples these things. No doubt this was repeated many, many more times. So don't you think somebody would have said, you know what? Jesus said something about being... Uh, arrested and taken to the chief priests and Gentiles and being mocked and spit upon and flogged and killed. And all of that's happened. But he also said he would rise on the third day. Maybe we should go check the tomb out and see if, if it happened. But that's not what we find. None of the twelve, or the remaining, the eleven, go to the tomb. They're not looking for it. They're not expecting it. It never, the thought never occurs to them that this could actually happen. 
And the women aren't going there to look for the resurrection. They're going there again to, to keep Jesus' body from stinking too bad. That's it. So everybody is caught off guard by the empty tomb. Complete shock. Now let me just say, if, if you were wanting to make up a story to kind of get a struggling religion off the ground, this is not how you would do it. Um, you, you wouldn't have women as witnesses. Now, in our day, that's not such a big deal. But in their day, when, they're writing the, when the writers wrote these accounts, the testimony of a woman wasn't even permissible in court. They were called hysterical. Not, not my words, theirs. Um, you, you wouldn't have them being scared and speechless. You wouldn't have the disciples running and hiding in fear behind closed doors, nowhere to be found. That's not, that's not how you would write it. You wouldn't find those things unless that's actually what happened. That's the only explanation. I mean, that's one of the many evidences of the veracity of the resurrection account in Scripture. And there are others. There are the witnesses, over 500 witnesses at one time and, and many others. There are, there's the fact of the moved stone that was heavily guarded by Roman soldiers and, and it was sealed and the body couldn't have been stolen. Um, there was the empty tomb and the inability to produce a body. Nobody could go and find the body. Uh, there's the harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which written by different, different people in different decades, some of them, and, and, and yet without contradiction. There's the fact that Sabbath worship moved to Sunday worship. I mean, monumental shift for these, these uh, Jews. But of all of the evidences that prove the historical reality of the empty tomb, there is, I would say, none more frustrating and more powerful than what is taking place right here this morning. It's you and me. It's the church. How do you explain the church without the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead? You can't. How do you explain the continuation of Jesus' little band of followers now some 2,000 years later without the empty tomb. And so that's the next thing I want us to see, the next point I want to make. So the empty tomb is shocking because it's true. The second thing I want you to see, because it's true, because the tomb really is empty, everything changes. Everything changes. Because it's true, history has changed. Human history. History doesn't make sense without the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You, 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 whatever took place there in first century Palestine changed the world forever. You can't deny that. Something happened. You, know, you think about it. Jesus was the leader of this dwindling, dilapidated struggling religious movement. Everybody, almost everybody had left. By the time he died, everybody had gone. There's nobody left. I mean, and, and he was running off followers and disciples. People would come and listen to him because he performed miracles and because he spoke with authority. But he would say things they didn't like. They would leave. They hated him. And the religious leaders hated him. The establishment hated him. Most of the common people hated him by the end. And And so... It was just this little struggling movement, and, and it was made up of nobodies. 
It was fishermen. And people like them, just uninfluential, unimpressive, social nobodies. And before the movement ever gets off the ground or gains any momentum, the leader, Jesus, is arrested and killed, executed for treason. And all of his followers desert him in droves. They go and they hide in order to save their own skin. I mean, Christianity lay on the brink of total extinction. And yet in three short days, everything changed. Everything changed. Those terrified, disbanded nobodies start showing up everywhere. Preaching with boldness in public. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they're fearless. They're just giving witness everywhere. And the whole world has changed. And so this little movement just spills out of the graveyard into the world. Almost overnight. Acts chapter 17 verse 6. Those early Christians were accused of, quote, turning the world upside down. Go from fear of annihilation to just spreading like wildfire. Now what turned these cowardly failures into courageous fanatics? What was it? He is risen. He is risen. That's the only explanation. That's the only thing that could fill in the blank there. That's it. In Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, the apostles brought were brought before the religious court and are, are called to testify and they're commanded not to teach in, in this name, in the name of Jesus anymore. And yet Peter, though, answered, and you were, this is the same Peter who was such a coward who denied Christ three times. He said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Does that sound like a coward? I mean, this really just ticked these religious leaders off. He steamed them with this. But there's, there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and he was a little more cool-headed. And so he calmed everybody down. And this was the proposition that he brought to them. He said, verse 35... Acts chapter 5, take care what you are about to do with these men. I know you want to just take them out back and kill them. But be careful. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. Well, guess what? He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. Guess what? He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Now, what's the common denominator between all these, quote, messiahs? They all died and they all stayed dead. And their movements came to nothing. Now, what's the difference about Jesus? What's the difference with Christianity? Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. And the movement that he started proved to be unstoppable. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus is true, history has changed. History has changed. It's one of the strongest evidences of the truthfulness of the empty tomb. But listen, the empty tomb isn't just something that was important back then in history, 2,000 years ago, when this whole Christianity thing was getting off the ground. No, it, it, its its reality is just as impactful. The implications are just as great today in your life. Your life should be transformed and changed and can be, as Frank, our brother Frank testified earlier, to this reality, and many here can, that, that it continues to shape and transform us today. And so that's the last thing I want us to see, is because it's true, not only is history changed, but your life can be changed. Your life can be changed. Just like history doesn't make any sense without the empty tomb, your life should not make any sense without the empty tomb. It should be the only explanation for the way that you live, for the way that you talk, the way that you act, the, the way that you think, the way that you plan for the future, the way that you shop, the way that you work, the way that you study, the way that you vacation. Everything. There should be one explanation. It's the fact that Jesus is risen. It just totally changes your life. Do you live like one who has encountered the, the crucified and resurrected Lord? So what is it about your life that, that can only be explained by the fact that He is risen? Let me just give you a few things that should be true of us. If we've really believed and are being transformed by this reality. The first thing that it does is it gives us hope. Hope. I know that's just kind of a bland word in our culture and it's become so watered down, but... But hope, because Christ didn't stay in the grave, how we think about the future, how we read the newspaper headlines or the headlines on our web browsers or on our phones, and how we think about death and sickness and pain and war and terrorism and financial instability, how we think about all of these things is... it. it, it we have the hope of the resurrection that nothing else can give. We have hope. Now again, Peter, the, the, the coward turned courageous preacher of the resurrection, 1 Peter 1, he writes a letter in 1 Peter. Now, again, it wasn't because Peter found courage by walking the yellow brick road to the Wizard of Oz. It was because he saw the resurrected Lord. That's what changed him. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a wishful hope, not a eh, sickly hope, that just wishful thinking, anemic hope. No, a living, vital hope. Wow, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. It's not going anywhere. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What does this hope do for us in this world? How does it change us? 
Well, he goes on and later in the epistle, in his letter, in 1 Peter 3.15, but he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for, for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what, that's what that means. We should be so transformed by, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and that we've been born again to this living hope. We should be so transformed by this that we're living and thinking and talking in such a way that people just scratch their heads and are puzzled by our hope. How, how is it that you're so hopeful when you see what's going on in the world? See what's going on in Kenya. See what's going on in Ukraine. See what's going on in Yemen. See what's going on in Nigeria. How are you so hopeful? See what's going on in our own nation. In our own community. In our own households. In our neighborhoods. How are you so hopeful? Have, have you recently been accused of being a very hope-filled person? Do people wonder how you face a painful trial Deep. I don't mean just put on, paste on a face and say, you know, PTL, praise the Lord, you know, everything's rosy and great. No, that's not hope. Hope is honest about the pain and suffering and the realities of the world. But there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a mindset, a view, a focus on what is to come and of the certainty that the Lord will, will bring all things to good. Is there a residing, deep, authentic, unshakable, penetrating hope in your life? And so when they do ask us for the reason of our hope, we have an answer, don't we? It's this. He has risen. He's risen. So hope. Another implication of the empty tomb for us, how it should change us, is truth. Truth. In Acts 17, Paul is on Mars, Mars Hill. He's got the greatest thinkers of the day, all the philosophers, all of the orators, all of the great thinkers, they're all gathered. Lots of smart people assembled on that hill. I would be way out of place there. But they're all there, and they all deny the resurrection. None of them will believe it. They're too smart to believe in something like resurrection from the dead. So Paul's invited to speak into this context, and he speaks for a while. We pick it up in verse 30, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And he turns the corner here as he's addressing them. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, change how you're living, the direction of your life. And that was horribly offensive to these people. They did not want to be told to change. They, they were the ones that set the direction. Verse 31, why should they repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is that saying? That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead puts an end to all speculations, to all philosophies that reject the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what his contention is. And it's true then, it's true today. I mean, Christians, we should be bolstered by the fact that there is truth, and that this is truth. This is it. I mean, when a man dies, goes into the grave, is buried, and then comes back to life three days later, that man 
instantly becomes the sole authority. He gets to say what's true. And Jesus, Jesus speaks truth. He is truth, Scripture says. He knows the truth. He is the truth. We're people of truth. Do you, do you live like that? Do you, are you timid or embarrassed about these things? Knowing that we're people of the truth, it shouldn't make us proud. It shouldn't make us jerks. Make it difficult to be around? No, it should should humble us. We're, the only reason we have eyes to see the truth is because God has opened our eyes to see, as our brother testified. So it gives us, we have truth. So, third, we have joy. Joy. Now, I won't linger here, but you, you, as you look in the book of Acts, these, these early Christians, after the resurrection of Christ... All of these followers of Jesus, their lives are just consumed with the reality of the empty tomb. And they are so stinking happy. (laughs) This is what you see as you look at their lives. It's not because their lives are easy and pleasant and everything just kind of fires on all cylinders all the time. No, they're suffering, they're being beaten, imprisoned, their belongings are being seized, they're being threatened, stoned, mocked, ridiculed, disowned by their families, and yet they're rejoicing, they're singing. And we're praising the Lord. There's joy in the midst of awful circumstances. Why? Because the fact that Jesus is alive was so fresh to them, so transforming of them. Are you a joyful person? Are you accused of being very joyful? Is your happiness fickle? Is it just tied to your circumstances? Some days, yeah, I'm happy. Other days, I'm not. You don't want to be around me. Is, it, is that true of you? Or is your joy rooted in the reality, the unchanging reality of the risen Christ? Joy. Power. I'll give you another one. Paul prays for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, 19 and 20, he prays for the Ephesians that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of, of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. What? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What he's saying is because Christ arose, God's, we can know God's great power towards us. And he says that the power that is ours through Christ is according to the same According to it's to the same measure that the power of the power that was demonstrated when Christ was raised from the dead. That's pretty incredible power. So we have power if we're in Christ. Power to say no to sin and temptation. You don't have to go on in that power to to have control over your bodies, over your appetites, over your tongues, over your desires. Power to love your enemies, power to forgive those who've wronged you. We have power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Enormous power. Sin is strong. But as we'll sing in a moment, Jesus is stronger. Stronger. And he proved it by raising from the dead. Next, we have confidence. We have confidence. I mean, Christians should exude this strange and weird confidence, especially in the face of death. I'm going to get morbid here for just a second, but hang on with me. Uh, we, we should suffer differently. We should die differently. We, we, we know people who have, haven't we? 
It's a, a, a marvelous thing to watch. 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus was raised, and we alluded to this earlier, death has been swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is removed for the believer. So we have this hope that he goes on to say that we will one day be raised imperishable like him. But of all of the things that are curious to the world about Christians who, who, who deeply believe and live out the implications of the empty tomb, it's this confidence in the faith of, face of death that is probably most puzzling and bizarre. I mean, death is, death is an enemy. It's a common enemy. I mean, the statistics are quite impressive. One in one person's die. Yeah, I know, it's profound. Um, so it's not if we'll die, it's, it's when we'll die. You can deny the resurrection, but you can't deny death. So death is certain, but if the resurrection isn't true, if there's no life beyond the grave, then what I should be saying to you this morning basically is you should eat really healthy and exercise a lot. Stay along as live as you uh, stay alive as long as you possibly can, because that's it. This is all you get. But that's not enough. It's not enough. The Bible says that eternity is bound up in our hearts. We have this sense there's more there's more there's a god and there is eternity and so then the question becomes how are you going to face death when it does come what are you going to do you're just going to deny it paul talks about those who say eat drink be merry for tomorrow we die are you going to are you going to depend on just being a good moral person as our brother frank was saying trying to keep the checkbook balanced to more good than bad and Hope that it all works out in the end. Are you going to rely upon what a priest told you when you were a little kid at a ritual or a baptism? Are you going to depend upon your family ties? By your intellect, by your rational abilities, by your financial resources? What are you, what are you going to depend upon? What are you going to lean on when death comes? We may not know when it comes. I mean, it could come any time. What are you going to depend upon? Well, back to Acts chapter 17. Remember all the influential movers and shakers, and they're there. They deny the resurrection. Paul tells them he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And what he's saying is judgment's coming. Death is coming, and after that judgment, are you prepared? And of this, he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. It's guaranteed. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can be certain that judgment's coming. Are you prepared for that day? Do you think you're going to be able to stand before the judge and make your case? Do you think you're going to be able to argue that your good outweighed your bad? Let me just tell you right now and just get it over with. You don't have a case. You don't have a case. God is holy. He is perfect. He is without sin. And you and I are sinners. We don't just do a bad thing every now and then. No, to the very core of our being, our, our natural bent is to do wrong. To disobey God. To break His law. And the, and the Bible says that, that if you're guilty of one transgression, you're guilty of it all. And, and your qualification for heaven, the scriptures say, is to be perfect as your Father is perfect. As God is perfect. And we're not, folks. We're not. I don't think I have to convince you of that. So where's the hope? Where's the hope? Well, the hope is that Jesus came to do what we could never do. 
He came and he lived the perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He, he was tempted to sin just like we are, but he never sinned. Now that is a staggering thought, isn't it? 30 plus years, never sinned. And yet he suffered and he was died on a cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. And there was a lot involved, and we talked about this on Friday night, if you were here, but there's a lot involved at the cross, a lot of men doing bad things, and there's an article in the bulletin that alludes to this. And so humans were involved in Jesus' crucifixion, but there was more going on. And, and when Jesus was on the cross, when that darkness fell for the three hours, and all of the Father's wrath was poured out upon the Son for our sin, he took it into himself. He paid the price for our sin. He bore the punishment and the wrath that we deserved. And then he said the words, it is finished. It's finished. It's done. The price for sin has been paid. Then he died. He died as your substitute. He, and so he lived the life you could never live. And he paid the debt for sin that you could never pay. But he didn't stay dead. He didn't state it. He was raised from the grave on the third day. And so Paul says in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what our brother Frank did on this Volkswagen van on the way home from work that day. That's it. Changed in an instant. You will die physically one day, but you will, you will be saved and receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Life that starts now and so so. our as Frank said, it changed. He had this realization. Everything's changed. And yet there's the hope of future life with God in heaven. In verse 10, he goes on in Romans 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Are you afraid of death? You don't have to be. Are you prepared to meet that great enemy death? I just say you can be. You really can be. John 11, verse 25, Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, when Paul preached that message on Mars Hill, there was a mixed reaction, as there probably will be today. Um, Not everybody believed. Most did not, in fact. There are some in his audience that simply would not believe that Christ rose from the dead. In Acts chapter 17, verse 32, he said, when they, the text says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Thank you for restraining yourself today and letting me continue on. Some mocked, though. But others said, we will hear you again concerning this. And the others, this text says, but some believed. Some believed. Now, you may, uh, you may be a skeptical mocker. And you're, again, out of courtesy, restraining yourself verbally, but inside there's, a, there's plenty of ridicule being hurled my way. That's okay. And you can talk to me afterwards and I can take it. <laughs> um, you may be a skeptic, and I'm glad you're here. I mean, I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I have no interest in embarrassing or shaming or doing anything. I, would, I, I care for you, and, I, and, I, and we can be friends, and I'd love to talk with you. Um, maybe you're hesitant. Maybe you're just hesitant. You'd like to hear more. Maybe you have questions you want to ask. Maybe you're ready to believe. You're ready. You, you believe this. God is opening your eyes, even as we're sitting here this morning. You may have been around this your whole life, or this may be brand new to you. And you want to believe. 
I just say wherever you're at, we will have you can come talk to me. You can talk to our brother Frank. Um, you can talk to, and I can point you to others, men, women that would love to help and walk with you and answer questions and pray with you about this. So please come find us after the service today if if, that, if you fall in any one of those categories. Let me just give one final implication of the empty tomb, and I'll just be able to state it briefly. And this is for those who are in Christ. Um, what this does is it sets our life on mission, on mission. And, and I go here. We go out of the empty tomb comes our marching orders. We call it the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And you can turn there if you want and, and, and look there with me. Matthew 28, the, the 11 remaining disciples, the 12 minus Judah, they go to Galilee just as Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, verse 16 says, they worshipped him. Of course they did. But then the text says, but some doubted. Some of Jesus' closest disciples doubted. Now, I don't. Th- this is not doubt of unbelief. This is doubt of hesitation. They, they gave pause. They wavered. They, and so what does Jesus do? He just lays into them. He just rubs it in their faces that they abandon him and that, and that he just berates them for the weakness of their faith. No, it's not it. He comes to them and he speaks to them. The text is very... He came and said to them, in light of their doubt, in light of their hesitation, what does this really mean? I think that's what the doubting is. It's like uh, the implications of this are going to be enormous. Jesus' death, his resurrection changes everything. What is this going to mean for my life? Nothing will ever be the same again. It's like pre-9-11 world, post-9-11 world. This is, this is far beyond that distinction. This pre-resurrection, post-resurrection, for Jesus' followers, everything changed. And so they're just they're struggling with that, that weight of that. So what does he say to them? He comes and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the promise. That's the assurance. And then he says something. That, this is the only thing that would make sense. I mean, Jesus just stepped and on the on the neck of sin and death rose from the dead and this is the only ending that fits verse 18 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and he gives this wonderful promise and behold i am the risen living christ and with you always to the end of the age. Uh, but I just give you this encouragement. That, that, that charge. It comes in the context of their waffling. Their doubting. That should encourage us. Maybe you're hesitating. Even as a believer. like This is more than I realized. I have believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this really does change everything. Doesn't it? If you're hesitating. I'd say it's actually probably a good thing. probably means you get it. You're, you're getting it. It's starting to sink in. It's not okay to just kind of go to church every now and then and just kind of meander through life, try to be a good moral person. If that's, if that's your, your thought, you don't get it. You don't get it. I hope that you're pausing. I hope that you're struggling with the weight of how this has changed everything. Because it does. From this day on, from that day on, the moment Jesus raised from the dead, our lives are to be consumed with nothing 
else except making disciples of all nations. That doesn't mean that we'll all go to the foreign field and we'll go be these superhero missionaries like Eric and Amanda. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. It means that we, we call it the Great Commission as if there was a not-so-great commission. Um, it's just a commission. It's our mission for all of us. All of those who follow Jesus after he's raised from the dead, what else do we do? We work our jobs. We go to school. We shop for groceries. We, uh, we, we, uh, we do all of the stuff we do, but it all has a focus to it. Even in the mundane of life, there's a, there's a mission to our lives. We are, we are left here on earth for one purpose, to make disciples of all nations. That's locally, that's around the world. It's the, if that's the measure of your life, if that's the measure of this church, how are we doing, brothers and sisters? Is, this, if, is our church fueled by this mission? I mean, we, we, we pray that Jesus' focuses, focus will be our focus as a church. And we're going through this process, this is internal housekeeping, but of this Vision 2020. That's not just a clever little, you know, clever way to kind of get us to strategize. No, it's just to realign us. Lord, you've given us this mission. We, have, we, need, to be, we need some correction. We need to be back in line with right where you have us. What about your family? Is it fueled by this mission? What about your own life? How you spend money, how you spend your leisure time, how you're using your retirement years, how you're using your education years, how you're making plans for the future. Is it ordered and dictated by this mission? It changes everything. Has it changed your life? Has it changed your life? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray that we, you would help us, God, to live in light of the empty tomb. That there would be a distinct, there would be a big blank in our life that can only be filled with the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. So help us to live out of that reality. To, as it were, touch the walls of the tomb. and Observe the claws laying there. And see the emptiness. See what's missing. And then to go out into the world, make disciples of all nations, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone here today who is still strange or, or maybe they're, they're really skeptical or, or maybe they, their eyes have been opened and they, and they, they believe, I pray that you would, you would um, prompt them to not leave this place without talking with somebody and seeking out help and counsel. What's next? So God, so work in hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.